Gospel of our Saviour Christ according to St. John, chapter 4, beginning at the 31st verse. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one had brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see why the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering food for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Whatever the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. restrictions were going to be placed on our freedom and for how long. But what clearly did not lie ahead was the usual program of exuberant celebration, parades and partying that are customary on the 17th of March, both in Dublin and in other cities in the world with their large communities of Irish roots. The Archbishop reflected on the locking up of what he called our convivial saint. But this year Patrick will be at large again or at least one version of Patrick, a pantomime bishop in the garb of a modern member of the Episcopate, a theological teacher who found shamrocks useful to illustrate the Trinity, a banisher of snakes, perhaps. Many of us in this chapel tonight will have the pleasure of discussing Patrick together through his own sparse writings and through the eyes of his later biographers. We briefly traced the development of fully-fledged life histories that started occurring in the 7th century. Here, Patrick is an important figure, a miracle worker, a dramatic punisher of the wicked, and an architect of a church that very definitely looked to Armagh for its leadership. Now, these feats of creativity are remarkable, considering Patrick's own confession gives so little information. We have only a few details of the early family life, kidnapping, enslavement, itinerary preaching, and baptizing ministry of someone who regarded himself as the least of Christians and the greatest of sinners. Someone who spoke self-deprecatingly about his own ignorance and lack of eloquence. Inventing lives for people around about us whom we know about whom we know very little, but who fascinate us, perhaps because we know little, is a popular human pastime, and it's certainly not restricted to the lives of the saints. I remember being an awestruck undergraduate in Cape Town at the time when a famous novelist held a professorship in English. 
It's rumoured that he put Brian Lawrence on his ex-wife's knees. One of his colleagues, who's a rather glamorous Scandinavian-looking individual, who'd written a doctoral thesis entitled The Tragedy of the Bedroom, was known as the Blonde Beast. There was no evidence for any of the student body's most outrageous speculations about their private lives. But in a way, we need to sustain the mythology in order to preserve their mystique. It was more about us than about them. We at least wanted to imagine that we were playing with fire. So I returned to Patrick and his own staff account. He can hardly be said to be presenting himself in the most advantageous light, at least in one sense. The person we meet is a sinner, a man who did not pay enough attention to God in his early life, and perhaps deserved to be taken as a slave. It's not even clear that he saw his ministry as a great success, though he does talk of those who were baptized, and for him that would have been the only statistic that would have been of much interest. His story is a brutally faithful ministry, carried out in the belief that he was working in the last days and at the edge of the known world. He identifies himself most closely with the tribulations of <coughs> in his life of mission and evangelism, and the confession is laden with quotations from Paul's letters, especially those that depict him as the least of the apostles, and describe the hardship conditions of being a missionary on the road, often among hostile people. I said this was not advantageous in one sense, in another, it is claiming a kind of integrity. For part of Patrick's motive for writing is self-vindication. Some sort of plot has been hatched against him, based on rumors of an early sin, and he never tells us what it was, which he long since confessed. It's in the face of suspicion and murmuring that he sets out his own case as a loyal and unswerving servant of God. The professor of English who allegedly administered brown glass to his wife gave an inaugural lecture on the subject of truth in autobiography. Many years have passed since I heard it, but the opening sentence is still written. Autobiography is a form of writing in which you tell the truth about yourself, or as much as you can bear to. At face value, Patrick's tolerance was fairly high. How many of us prefer to present our inadequacies and hardships to the world? But that's perhaps to think in rather modern terms, and with a particular idea of a successful human being in mind. Let's dwell a little longer on Patrick's role model, St. Paul. Something paradoxical is happening as he identifies with the apostles' troubles and vicissitudes. On the one hand, his career and failure, and on the other hand, he's confidently claiming an experience like that of a real saint. We may not yet have got to the bottom of what Patrick was trying to convey to an audience of contemporaries. But if he thought that the end of the world was imminent, later audiences were probably not part of consideration. Things were different for later chroniclers, though. They were writing for the present, and they were certainly writing for prosperity. And that might lead us to guess at why they so extensively embellished Patrick's life. Some of that is suggested to us by historians. Pierre Mules had become dominant in Ulster. Armagh was asserting itself as the principal sea in Ireland. The need for association with a significant holy person was growing. There was Patrick, but who wants to be associated with a failure? Arguing for his similarity to St. Paul in suffering and hardship, and the often fruitless toil of spreading the good news, 
It's not clear to me from the impression on those who look for the signs of power, prosperity, authority over the spiritual and physical realms, and even the right to inflict terrible punishment on the wicked. The figure that was needed would have to have been solely responsible for bringing Christianity to Ireland. It would have to look like authority. So what they produced was an invention, but it wasn't exactly an invention from nothing. There were already templates for saints' lives. Saints performed wonders. They were often miraculously led to particular places where they found in churches. This story is not a group of born animals. And Patrick follows a deer near Armagh and saves her form from his companions who spot and eat his meal. They triumph over false prophets and they can harness elements like fire and water against the wicked. They can command death and they can raise the dead. There is no point in trying to weigh up this way of narrating a life with current notions of fact. Fact wasn't at all in the targets of the people who were writing. But it is harder to talk about truth. There can be things that are spiritually true embedded in quite far-fetched stories. As I thought about the readings for the Feast of St. Patrick, I begin to feel that there is another kind of life writing which is interestingly peculiar to the church. It's called the lectionary. So let's review tonight's selection. We heard first a hymn of praise out of Bach Tobit, a faithful Jew who moved from his homeland during the Assyrian onslaughts of the 8th century. The story was probably written down much later. Things turn out well for Tobit in the end. He recovers from blindness. An apparent curse is lifted from the young woman his son Tobias has traveled to marry. And Tobias marries happily into the Jewish community. At the culmination of these adventures, the Archangel Raphael has played a key role in guiding and protecting the family of the boys' identity. And suddenly, Tobit realizes that God has been faithful all the time, even through great difficulties. The second letter to the Corinthians finds Paul denying any personal evangelistic power or rhetorical skill. We preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord and ourselves as your slaves, he tells Philippians. What matters is that the light of God revealed in the face of Christ should be made known with no mediation or interference. Finally, the Gospel takes up the story of what happens after Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. His disciples, who seem to have been occupied elsewhere and return just as the conversation ends, are anxious that Jesus needs food. Jesus, however, has more urgent things on his mind, the harvest that must be gathered by the preaching of the kingdom. Others, whether Moses and the prophets or earlier teachers and missionaries have prepared the ground, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, he tells them. Others have labored, you have entered into their labor. These reflect what Patrick himself tells us, his joy and confidence in God, his refusal to think of himself more than a humble agent in the service of preaching the gospel. They also allude to something that he doesn't mention, the earlier mission of Palladius, ordained bishop for the Christians in Ireland by Pope Celestine, and probably active in Ireland shortly before Patrick appeared on the scene. That's an important corrective to the extravagant claims of the 7th century writers, who'd managed to write Palladius out of the story altogether. It leaves us with the decision which Patrick will we choose. 
There is the early voice, simple, not given to self-promotion, steeped in scripture, familiar with suffering and betrayal, yet convinced that the work of God was worth persistence against every obstacle. There's the saint we might like to have, a figure who can come on the pageant, dress up in the senator's robes, make judgments about the wicked and the virtuous, someone who consecrated other bishops and organized the church with our knowledge as head. And there's the lectionary Patrick, a portrait that emphasizes joy in a faithful God, refusal to take any personal credit for proclaiming Christ as widely as possible, and gratitude above all for those whose work has made Patrick's own work possible. Our choice will inevitably say something about ourselves, if we reveal our romanticism, our wistfulness, our longing for a humility that we find it hard to practice in our own lives, our desire to find all our ultimate truth in scripture. I suspect that imagination might lead us at times to create our own amalgamation of elements of all these Patricks. But what we should not do is lose sight of the elements that make the saints such beacons of hope, perseverance, joy, faith. Nor should we fail to note their understandings of how hard it is to be human. Above all, we should attend closely to the picture of a living and dynamic relationship with God at all times and in all circumstances. God can do extraordinary things with those ingredients. Let's pray. Almighty God, build your church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the true cornerstone. So join us together in unity of spirit by their doctrine, that we may be in the beginning a holy temple acceptable to you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Amen.